So we are in the book of Hebrews, and to recap, we are going to get into the new covenant tonight, which will start in Hebrews 8. So what we've established is, obviously, Hebrews is written to Jews, Hebrews, who know the Bible. First chapter establishes that Yeshua is God's heir, that he's not an angel, and that he's fully human and we're his brothers, and that he will have an earthly kingdom. And then we had uh, the gospel in the wilderness, and because the people in the wilderness didn't believe, they didn't get to enter God's rest. Then we have he's a priest, and we talked about the order of Melchizedek, which is without beginning and without end, and without genealogy. We talked about the fact that Melchizedek is one of the major characters in the Bible that doesn't have all that. Let's start at the end of chapter 7. So 723 Hebrews. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And again, this is a playoff, if you will, of Melchizedek, who never died, air quotes around never died. Everybody else in scripture, all the major characters, birth is recorded, genealogy is recorded, and death is recorded. Melchizedek's got none of that. He just sort of pops up. And so the writer of Hebrews is using him as a model for Yeshua's priesthood because Yeshua having risen from the dead and being seated with God in the heavenlies also is without end. And hence he can be a priest forever. So verse 26, For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses high priest, with the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now what was the oath? Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn that you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the oath that he's talking about. And the oath, which is in Psalms, came after the appointment of the Aaronic priesthood back in Exodus. So the Aaronic priesthood was appointed in the Torah. The oath that appoints Yeshua a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek is in the Psalms. Psalms are later in time than the Torah. So the oath was an addendum or something that was given after the Torah itself. David, having said that, was acting as a prophet. But the deal here is that the oath came after, so you have a new order of priesthood and you have a new appointment of priests that is in addition to what was set up by the Torah. Now the other thing, he says he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. What's he talking about there? At Yom Kippur, when the high priest is going to make atonement for the people, the first thing he does is he goes into the Holy of Holies 
with the blood of a bull to cover his own sins. Then he comes out, kills the goat, goes back in with the blood of the goat, and atones for the sins of the nation. Well, Yeshua is without sin. So there's only one sacrifice, and that's his own blood, which he takes in. But since he is without sin, he doesn't have to do that first sacrifice. He only has to do the second sacrifice, and that second sacrifice then covers the sins of the people. So we're now down to chapter 8. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So the deal is if you're a priest and you're going to come before God, you have to come with a sacrifice. And it's saying there Yeshua is no exception. He's coming before God, so he has to come with a sacrifice. And the tent where he is sacrificing, and we'll get to this in just a minute, is the one of which the tabernacle in the wilderness was a copy. And he'll go through that in just a minute and say that. But the idea is he is, in all respects, duplicating the Yom Kippur service with the exception that he doesn't have to bring a sacrifice for his own sins, so he can go directly to bringing a sacrifice for the people, and the place where he's doing it is in the true tabernacle, not the one which is a copy. So now down to verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Again, he has made the point earlier on that the Torah establishes priests and says nothing about the tribe of Judah and priesthood. Since Yeshua is of the tribe of Judah, he does not qualify to be a priest under the Torah. Verse 6 now, but as it is, Messiah has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So now what he's doing, he is saying Yeshua is a priest according to a different order. He is not a priest according to the Torah, and he is the mediator of a covenant which is better than the Torah. Verse 7. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So what he's saying is, there's a problem with the Torah. If there had been no problem with the Torah, then there would not be any need for a new covenant. If the Torah was a fine all by itself, then the new covenant would not be necessary. Because the Torah would just continue. Verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says... And then we're going to get the recitation of the New Covenant from Jeremiah 31. But I want to pause here at the beginning of verse 8. It says, he finds fault with them. Now, there apparently are some translations that have it. Every version of the Bible that I have has them. So I don't know what version would have it. Verse 8 again, for two versions now. For he finds fault with them, when he says, or he finds fault with it 
when he says. And so the question then is, what does he find fault with? And if the pronoun is it, then referring that, he would say there's a problem with the Torah. If the pronoun is them, as it is in every translation of the Bible that I own, then the problem is not with the Torah, it is with the parties to the Torah. Remember, the covenant is not with the priest, the covenant is with Israel, the nation. And the problem that he is having is with them, the nation Israel, not with it, the Torah. So now he's going to go into Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, and I'm going to skip back to Jeremiah 31 itself, because what he has done here is he has cherry-picked the center of the new covenant. There's some stuff that happens before and after that's important for context. But remember my assertion is this letter is written to Hebrews who can be expected to be familiar with Jeremiah. So he just picks the part of it that says what he wants to say and he doesn't do all the preamble and postlude to that because he's assuming everybody reading this is a Hebrew and understands that. As Gentiles, those of us who are, we need to go back and look at the context. So now I'm going to go back to Jeremiah 31. Let's start at verse 1. And I'm not going to read all of 31. I'm going to skip through it. But there's some stuff in there that is important. So Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 1. At that time, that time is yet undefined, but we'll get there in a minute. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. So first thing is he's talking about a future time when he is going to be, once again, the God of a united Israel. Now, remember when Jeremiah was written, the nation has been sent to Babylon. The northern kingdom has been scattered by the Assyrians over a hundred years prior to that. So the northern kingdom has been gone for over a century. The southern kingdom, Judah, is on its way to Babylon or is in Babylon by the end of the book because Jeremiah wrote a letter to Babylon when everybody in Babylon was saying, ah, ah, the Lord's going to bring us back. Let's rebel. Let's revolt. And Jeremiah sends him, yeah, don't. You're going to be there for 70 years. Just cool it. Settle down. Get married. Start businesses. Pray for the peace of uh, the Babylonian Empire because you're going to be there for a while. So Jeremiah is writing now as the entire nation of Israel, both north and south, have been shipped off into exile. Jeremiah 31 talks about a future time when they will be regathered. And at that time, God says, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people, which means I'm going to bring them all back. I'm going to put them in the land. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. So the first thing to understand is we're talking about the entire nation. That's important. Now I'm going to scroll down here. Let's pick it up at verse 8. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, and her who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, 
and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now remember at the time this is being written, Ephraim has been lost for over a hundred years. What God is saying is, Ephraim's my firstborn. I'm going to bring him back. So then we'll go on to verse 15 now. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. Who are Rachel's children? Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Joseph and Benjamin. So Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own company. I have heard if I am grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I was turned away, I relented, for I was instructed, I slapped my thigh, I was ashamed, I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So again, the northern kingdom. So now let's go down to verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Once more they shall hear these words in the land of Judah and its cities, when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O inhabitants of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. So we have now the promise to return Ephraim and the promise to return Judah. So now, with that preamble, let's go down to Jeremiah 31.31, which is where the quotation in Hebrews begins. And this is just a straight quotation in Hebrews. You can read it from either place. It's the same thing. Often quotations from the Tanakh in the New Testament come, for example, from the Septuagint, which are translated slightly differently. As far as I can tell, these are the same. You can read it either place. So, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So who's the new covenant going to be with? Israel and Judah. By the way, are any Gentiles in there? No. This is a covenant with Israel and with Judah. There is no Gentile as a party of this covenant. So, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So who's the problem with? Israel, the people them back in the book of Hebrews. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. Who's that covenant with? Israel. What happened to Judah? Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's verse 31. Then down in verse 33. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. What happened to Judah? What we're talking about is Israel and Judah reunited into Israel, which is Jacob's new name, which is the name of the entire nation. 
So what we have here, if you will, are the two sticks coming together in the Father's hand. So the thing that's important here is what is the condition for the establishment of the new covenant? All of Israel is brought back to the land and reunited as one nation. What are we seeing now? Judah is back in the land. So what happens is when we come out of exile, Judah comes back first. Judah is coming back. That's what's going on right now. What has not begun is the return of Ephraim, the rest of Israel. This new covenant is not going to be made or not going to be made effective until that reunification has happened which says you are not living under the new covenant, despite what your Sunday brethren think. Joseph leads going into exile, Judah leads coming back. So Joseph is the first one, he gets sold into Egypt, so he leads going into exile. He's also the first one to go into exile with the northern kingdom. Judah follows. Coming back, it's reversed. Judah leads and, and Joseph follows. So the point I'm making here is the covenant is going to be made with a reunited Israel back in the land. And until then, that covenant has not is not in effect. Now, one of the things that we may get to tonight is the fact that the covenant has been cut, which is to say the blood to make the covenant has been shed. That's Yeshua's blood. But the way Ray explains it, which I like very much, is like a real estate deal, which it is, very much a real estate deal. You sign the contract, but you don't take possession until the closing. The contract has been signed. Yeshua's blood has been shed. The covenant has been ratified in blood, but we have not yet taken possession because Israel and Judah are not back together. There is 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. What I believe they are, you know, your mileage may vary. There's lots of people who study it and think different things. There are 72 biblical nations according to the Septuagint. So I see that as a thousand pairs for each of the biblical nations. They go two by two. And their job is to go out into the world and round up Ephraim and bring them back in much the same way as Moses went into Egypt and rounded up Israel and brought them out. What I have asserted here is the new covenant is going to be made with a reunited Israel. The new covenant will not be in effect until Israel is in fact reunited and is back in the land. So, pick it up again at 31.31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the deal of the new covenant is Israel restored to the land, and the Torah written on the heart. 
the thing that is written on the heart is no different than the thing that was given at Sinai. Because you remember at Sinai, what happened was God started speaking to the nation Israel. He got through two of the commandments, and Israel said, stop. If we hear any more from the Lord, we will die. Moses, go up the mountain, find out what he's got to say, bring it back down to us, and we'll obey. But we cannot hear the voice of the Lord directly any longer or we'll die. At that point is when tablets of stone became decreed. And what tablets of stone are are a metaphor for hearts of stone. What God was trying to do with his word from the mountain was write his word on the hearts of the nation Israel, but they would not. So at that point, he says, fine, y'all got hearts of stone. I still got this covenant to give you, so I will give it to you, but I'll write it on tablets of stone that you'll carry around with you so that you will always be reminded that you have hearts of stone. The Torah is not supposed to be written on tablets of stone. It's supposed to be written on the human heart. And the thing that will change here with the new covenant is God will finally succeed in writing it on the human heart and it will no longer need to be on tablets of stone. But the thing that is written doesn't change. There's nothing wrong with the words of the covenant. There's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Those words will not change. The only thing that will change is the location where it's written which takes us back to Hebrews 8.8. For he finds fault with them when he says. And the problem is Israel would not accept the Torah written on their heart like he desired. So he had to write it on tablets of stone. And then they proceeded to go astray and they had to be sent into exile and a whole bunch of other stuff had to happen. But now when he's finally going to regather them, he is going to take the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He is going to circumcise their heart, Deuteronomy. Heart of stone for heart of flesh, Ezekiel. Write the Torah on their heart, Jeremiah. It's all the same thing. That has not happened. In the future, he will be able to write his Torah where he wants to write it, whereas in the past he could not. The reason I belabor this is because your Sunday brethren are under the impression that they're living under the New Covenant and that the old covenant, that old Torah, that old law is done away with. And that is not true. That will never be true. The tablets of stone will be done away with. The words that were written on them will not. And as I say, your Sunday brethren, God bless them, are all under the impression that they're living under the new covenant and that the old has been done away with and you don't have to follow that old law anymore. They get it all over the place. And one of the places they'll get it from is Hebrews. One of the places they'll come is just a little bit beyond here in Hebrews. I'll show it to you. And I'll explain why they're wrong. But the first thing I want to get welded into everybody's head is that the words that God spoke are true and eternal and good and perfect and do not need to be changed. The thing that needs to change is the medium on which they are written. They should not be on tablets of stone. They should be on hearts of flesh. But if everything is fulfilled, there's no need for the book of Revelation. He began a process that will culminate in the new covenant. And that covenant has been ratified, it's been cut, the blood has been shed. But there is a whole bunch of process that will have to happen yet before everybody gets under it like they're supposed to. All right.
We're now back in Hebrews 8. So we finish the new covenant. So verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's one of the places where your seventy brethren will fetch up. Let's talk about what that is actually saying. Now, first off, notice the tenses of the verbs. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, period. And what is becoming, not what has become, but what is becoming obsolete and growing, not has grown. So what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It has not yet vanished away. Now, let's look at the meaning of the word obsolete. For those of you who have been in the military, you are very familiar with that word. Everybody has obsolete equipment. Every computer that you own is obsolete. Because as soon as you buy it, there's a new one that comes out and gets manufactured, which is better. Everybody works with obsolete equipment. We had dump trucks, and they were obsolete because there were new dump trucks that the Army had procured and were ready to be issued, but were they standing to us yet? Yeah. Now, the comment was, I've had 15 updates on my iPhone since I got it a year ago. Obsolete does not mean done away with. It simply means that there is a better model to be had. You may not have that better model yet, but you potentially could get the better model. And once you do get the better model, you will trade it for your old model, and the old one will pass away. But until then, your obsolete dump truck or your obsolete rifle or your obsolete computer works just fine and continues to be useful. And again, notice the tenses of the verbs. Since he makes the first one obsolete, which means that there is a better one coming. So the one you're living in is obsolete, and the reason it's obsolete is because it's written in the wrong place. That's the thing about it that's obsolete. It's written in the wrong place. So what he's going to do is he's going to take those rocks, those tablets of stone, and when he writes the Torah on your heart, those tablets of stone are getting ground into road base because they're no longer necessary. But until that happens, the Torah that you have on tablets of stone works just fine and continues to be valid, continues to be enforced, and continues to be usable. All I'm doing is explaining what's been written down there. I am not interpreting anything. So when your suddenly brethren says, well, the old covenant's obsolete, that's true. But you better hang on to it until you get the new one. Everybody clear on the new covenant? New Testament and new covenant are two different things, by the way. The new covenant is the Torah written where it's supposed to be, on the human heart. The new testament is the evidence that Yeshua came in accordance with the scriptures and did the things that God said he was going to do and that is your evidence as a testament, testimony. It's not the New Covenant. So the last third of your Bible is not the New Covenant, it's the New Testament. The New Covenant is a thoroughly Old Testament concept. We're at the end of a chapter. Let's go one other place, since we have about 10 minutes. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Nail this down since we have a few minutes. One of the things that's been talked about in Hebrews starting off with chapter 1, is that Yeshua is the heir of God. He inherits. And that we as his brothers become fellow heirs of God. 
That's all throughout the first part of uh, Hebrews that we've been through already, talking about inheritance. And that angels don't inherit, but the Son inherits, and then we, because we are his brothers, also have an inheritance. So now if we go to Ephesians chapter 1, I'll pick it up in verse 11. In him, Yeshua, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Messiah might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So what Paul is saying there is, when you heard the gospel and you received the Holy Spirit, you were sealed. And that became your guarantee that you were going to get an inheritance. However, it says, you do not yet have possession of that inheritance. And that goes back to our discussion of the new covenant. The new covenant has been cut. The sacrificial victim has been sacrificed. The covenant is cut. But it is not yet in effect because we have not yet taken possession of the inheritance that is promised us. The deal here is that the Holy Spirit is your guarantee, your seal, your mark, your claim check, whatever you want to call it, that you have an inheritance waiting for you. But you do not have possession of it yet. Which goes back to our discussion about the new covenant, which has been cut, ratified in Yeshua's blood. But there is a process by which that covenant will come into full effect and that process involves the regathering of all the tribes of Israel and then circumcision of the heart, removal of the heart of stone or so forth, and the Torah written on the heart. And that has not yet happened. So, but the process started 2,000 years ago. And the book of Revelation is the outworking of that process. It's the process of his coming. I happen to personally believe that we are between the fourth and the sixth seal. And you have the seven seals, which authenticate him as the king. Then you have the seven trumpets, which announce the coming of the king. He touches down at the seventh trumpet. That's when the millennial reign starts. And then you have seven bowls of wrath, where he takes vengeance on his enemies. All of that is by way of working out the process of bringing the new covenant fully into effect and getting us our inheritance. And at least to me, the whole thing is just very obvious. Et ta